Hello, hello! Welcome to another episode of Just Two Dudes Reading Theory. I'm Chris. I am Preston. And this week we are reading Freud's essay on fetishism. And, uh, Preston, what's Freud's thesis here? What's he doing? Well, uh, to sum it up, and feel free to add things, as you will, to uh, get a better picture... Freud firmly and confidently believes that all fetishes, all fetishes, are in fact a result of a, um, what's the word you would use here? A, a disconnect, um, a repression of the trauma. A denial. Yes, that's it. That's the word a, we're looking for. A denial of the trauma involved with realizing that your mother does not have a penis and the fear involved with that and uh the the uh the castration fear that comes with it yeah so uh in other words freud believes that in our early early childhood experience we have an experience where we um see a woman's vagina for the first time usually our mothers and at the loss, they do not have a penis, is immediately in a imaginary relationship to me or the child. It seems very weird saying me on that because I don't <laughs> have access to that. Um, if the mom does not have a penis, then I am in danger of losing my penis. Yes. Now, this is fundamental. Obviously. This Yeah, this castration fear haunts many essays and, and the whole framework of, of uh, later Freud. But where the fetishism comes in is after that, right? It yes. is in the response to this trauma. Yes. It is the denial, which becomes later the fetishistic denial, yes. which is that you do and sort of do not accept the fact that the mother's phallus does not exist. And therefore, the mother's phallus becomes transplanted as... A different object. This is... A different object, in his words, becomes appointed the successor. Ah. And that is the object of fetishization. This is obviously why people who like fur, they're just obsessed with the pubic hair, right? Oh, that one didn't bother me too much, actually. <laughs> of all the really crazy shit in this essay, that one kind of was the most logical. It's the most reasonable, yeah, that was the most, I guess. Like, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that one definitely... I felt a certain... Maybe brain going on. There was on that. a little bit of a like, well, I mean, yeah, I guess the, I could see a connection there, but um, there's some, uh, there's some stuff I disagree with in this here essay. Yeah, well, first of all, we have to tell the audience about the first fetish that Freud uses as his, his case, which is a man who comes to him, and again, he makes it very clear that people with fetishes don't consider their fetish a problem in the sexual act. They consider it an aid or, in Freud's words, the hinge on which the sexual act actually takes place, mm. right? But it's a man who has a has a nose fetish and... A shine on the nose. A shine on the nose. And he gives a very strange metaphorical take on it, in my opinion, right? Like, it's like, it's a shine on the nose becomes the object of fixation, which is deeply odd. And also, it seems a little self-serving to choose a nose, you know, a thing that is vaguely penis-shaped. It's, uh, 
an object protruding from a flat surface. So unimaginative. To a point, you know, yeah. yeah. So unimaginative. I guess the in that view, the ur fetishistic object would be like the Washington Monument. Not the Washington Monument. Yeah, it is. The, the obelisk, right? The Wait, obelisk. I was under the impression that the Washington Monument was just a blown up version of Washington's actual penis. Yeah. This was there you go. truly <laughs> the secret of his strategic genius was the uh, geometric penis, you know? Yeah, the very cold, irrevocably pointy How American is it that they're like, you know what? We're going to put the dick of our first president up, but we're going to make it like 100 feet tall. It's going to be like a laser beam (laughs) emitting from it. Anyway, so, getting back. In this essay, what's lovely about... It is that we can still somehow resurrect some of it, but for the first half, I think we should shit on it a lot <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's gonna be and fun. have a lot of fun. So the first problem is that his argument is that fetishistic enjoyment entails enjoying something in the open that is non-sexual to others, that, that they can see and everyone can see and it's fully out in the open and yet someone in the crowd is getting off to it. And Mm. part of that enjoyment is the person getting off to it in secret. Except thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) Is that how you believe fetishes work, actually? I mean, I'm not in this time period, but... No, like maybe in a weird 80s movie comedic sense yeah what just what's the actual prevention of a fetish from being public is the social yes i would say it's like the the social views surrounding such a thing like yes i think it's been kind of interesting to see how and it's clearly not at a point where people like oh yeah fine but um like the uh like BDSM community has made grounds, I guess I would say, in some ways that it's it's moved beyond like oh, all of those people clearly have like mental issues and they're not dealing with it properly to like I think there are more people they're like they're just having a good time. They're just having a good time. And that's actually the one error that Freud doesn't make, right? He kind of is... He's giving uh, what I would call a myth about the origination of the fetish, but he's not giving it a value judgment. He's not saying, like, the person who has a nose fetish is, like, somehow wrong for having it. He's Mm. just taking the subject at their word. And that's actually something that, of all the errors he does make, that was something that still is uh is a really big issue right absolutely yeah i uh i don't know like i think you nailed it like nowadays the the big thing with fetish like the reason i think it's not more open is it's just the social shit yeah social conventions prohibit it now, I think what Freud would say that I think the jury's out on, I think it really depends on what the fetish is and the subjectivity involved, is that I think Freud would say that 
in this model that he's given us, any fetish, any enjoyment of it depends on society being against it. As soon as society turns t fully towards BDSM, the BDSM people will change to something else. I don't agree with that, but I think that would be what Freud would say. That would be my guess. I, I, I think I'd agree with you there. Um, I don't agree with him on that, but I, I, I think that, you know, with this point in his belief, yeah, that is... Uh, yeah, and I, I, okay, yeah. I have a great... Okay, I think it's a good example of why that doesn't work. In Bob's Burgers... Tina's enjoyment of butts as her object of like prepubescent sexual desire doesn't depend on anything. No. Like her worldview would just be butts everywhere. And she's like, again, like there's moments where it's like there's the reading of the this vampire fiction reading, but And then Jimmy Jr. reached over and grabbed the zombie butt and, and <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, and 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 I think that what what that really shows in Bob's burgers is what I think is a more correct viewpoint, which is that the enjoyment is gonna be stopped at some point by the society. And maybe for some of them retroactively the no will be incorporated in. But Ooh. not for Tina. You know, I mean, Tina's just enjoying butts, right? Like, there's no... Okay, the next sin. Can I give us the next sin, or do you want to give us <laughs> no, the next you, sin? No, you go for okay, it. Okay, the next sin, and this is just one that obviously is, is just really bad. Uh, if we were monetized, we'd be demonetized. Um, that the fetishes, fetish spares the fetishist from becoming homosexual... <laughs> And that it endows women with a characteristic making them acceptable as sexual objects? Which is ridiculous! It's ridiculous! It's ridiculous! But let's like what's but let's tell them why. What is your first reason why that's a ridiculous sentence? Okay. My first thought is that under this uh, model he's proposing. Anyone who has a fetish is essentially using said fetish to fend off being gay. Right. And that has got to be the craziest goddamn thing I've heard. In well, a because it almost doesn't work in his own. So, like, discount the whole social sphere. Let's imagine a world where gay people are neutral to straight people. It's we we haven't reached that. The, that would reach the point where he talks about fetishism at the beginning, where the person who enjoys their fetish is not, they don't have an, they don't have a mental problem with their fetish. That should be, I think, the ideal for all sexual preference is, well, I mean, I mean, well, most, <laughs> I don't know if I can say all, Mo, like LGBT and, uh, those are, sorry, gender expressions, but for all, uh, although I think gender expression actually might fit under that as well, whatever the gender expression of the person is and their sexual preference would be in an analytic situation value neutral. That would be the goal, right? The same thing with, with straight. If, if the person's not having an issue with it and if the issue's there, it's going to be from someone else or from society or from their, their work environment or from, you know, from concrete situations in reality. 
Whereas here he kind of doesn't let homosexuality be a fetish. He lets the social invade it a little and is like, oh, people are inherently avoidant to being gay, which mm. is supremely not true. I mean, it's just not true. This this is completely not true. I, I think it's <laughs> quite drastically the opposite. I mean, I, you know... Right, you have you have uh, which comes from Freud too. He says that we our basic stance is that we're we're bisexual at not birth, but when our first sexual inclinations happen, they're undifferentiated. They're sort of a pansexual orientation, and then society tells us this is me, not Freud, which way to go, and our brain chemistry can react, and we are who we are. Whether we're pansexual, bi, straight, whatever we are. And then you might have repression or, or some type of at least stigma. But it does seem like any type of sexuality that's not just on a normal distribution, I'm not saying normal with values, I'm just saying normal on a bell curve, it seems like the goal would be to make that also on the level of the fetish that Freud is saying. Yeah. He's not saying that the fetish has a value, but he's clearly saying that people find homosexuality... Uh, not an option when they're children, which is again like children are, are are not that way. They're very open. It's it's completely different. That was very rambling, but yes. I just I I don't know. I I guess I had a hard time with the by endowing women with characteristics which make them tolerable as sexual objects. We had to make them tolerable. Like I don't. I don't know, ever since a certain age, that's, there was like a flick of a switch where it's like, hmm, very interested in this. And I, I don't know, I, I don't think, I don't know, maybe I have tons of repression and I'm not dealing with this properly. Well, the kernel of truth from Freud is we probably all do, but like, that's not always relevant. I think that. What is relevant is the idea, first of all, that there's the second error, which is much less problematic than the idea that are at, at the level of primary or right after repression, a child would already know those distinctions subconsciously. Um, mm. Would be, and they might, like in, in a very repressive society, a three-year-old, yeah, they, I would say, yeah, I think in American society today, which I would say is in different parts an exceedingly repressive society, um, yeah. But it's going to be so indirect. It's going to be imagery and, and color schemes and everything. But whereas, like, I think that the other much more minor issue is, like, fuck. I think there's people who have, I, I referenced this with, I had a friend who had a, a foot fetish. And she was open about it, but the way she talked about it was not that like feet needed to be there. It's that they were an added, sur ad added surplus, like an added thing on top that didn't make sexuality possible. It made it better. <laughs> like it was already good. I mean, isn't Freud kind of missing the idea of I have an ice cream and then I have another ice cream of a different flavor and I'm really hungry. So now I can have both ice creams. Missing the concept <laughs> of like, yeah, video games are great. Video games stoned? 
that's the shit. That's that's yeah an extra level. I don't need to get stoned to play video games. But if I had the option to smoke a couple bowls and play video games, well, yeah, why not? That sounds like a little bit more fun. Yeah, we went from a 6 out of 10 to a 10 out of 10. Like, those are, those are two things, and I think he's making it a little simplistic, right? Like, it's, it's, it's deeply simplistic to fit his myth that he's making here. But... Also, even for the person who is, we read an article also to gain a better understanding of modern views of fetishism, um, the man who is obsessed with having sex with tractors, and he like got trespassed a bunch from properties for having sex with tractors, and they went to his computer with a search warrant, and he had nothing but pictures of tractors. I think that while for him I might I give him... I love my motorcycle and all, but... <laughs> I know. But would you would you give Freud that maybe if do you think Freud's right on that one? Like do you think if if that man is only attracted to tractors, do you think that the presence of a woman would need to also be her riding a tractor? Um If you've reached a stage where you're putting it in a tractor? Where? I, I, I'm not a tractor man. I don't know <laughs> I those don't know. mechanics. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like at that stage, the woman has entered as the like, well, this is a nice addition. He's, he's flipped it at that point. Like it's... Oh, like the tractor literally <laughs> is the woman. Yes. So it's... Is that what he's talking about then? Because because if that's what he's talking about, like not a person who has a foot preference, but a person who has only sex that involves a magical object. So this is this is the question when I read like the the abstract on the mm-hmm. National Institute of Health one. Oh, that that's a tractor. Yeah, yeah. Is yeah like where they they talked more about like the people that they're seeing are usually like court appointed to be seeing these people for these things and if the law has gotten involved with your fetish that i i think we're on a little bit different of a level than like it's a you know something i like that just makes it a little bit better you know it's fun to have every once in a while into a uh into a new realm there. Yeah. So then, but then, but Freud can't be right then, right? Because like he says that he's talking about this man who has the nose fetish, and it, and I'm, if I'm assuming he's basing it on the nose fetish, that the nose is what makes him able to have sex with women, then, then that that can't be the nose is the woman. Mm. Because the nose is sort of the prerequisite towards sexuality. Yeah. It's not the object. It's well, it's the object, but it's not taking the place of the woman. Whereas with the tractor guy, or on Mind Strange Addiction, with all these just completely amazing <laughs> examples, the the person who fell in love with the roller coaster, like that's that's different, right? It's got to be different. At that point, you might actually more fit his model of psychoses, right? Like the psychosis, you're not gonna. It's not gonna fit the fetishistic model if. If the person literally loves the doll. Reality is being muted 
and your desires are becoming immutable at that point. And yeah. That is, that's, that's psychosis, right? Yeah. That's, okay. What about, here's a weirder one. What about the people who fall in love with dolls? They look like people. Oh, do we need to go into the uncanny shit before we, <laughs> we can dive into that? Hold, cause, oh, especially we'll nowadays. We'll do that with the next, which... his, his example, of course, in the uncanny essay is a doll. So we'll, we'll, we're, uh, for everyone Could you imagine? we're going to do the uncanny at some point. Could you imagine if he could, like, see the, um, oh, what's it called? The, like, the big body pillow, uh, anime oh, the, the characters. That's it. That's <laughs> the it. Um, what would Freud have to say? To the waifu? I think, okay, honestly, I think it's complicated. I, okay, so I I'm entering into the... I think it is immensely complicated. I think it's actually a double articulation. So here's my thought on the waifu. So for everyone listening who has never seen a waifu pillow, it's a... Lucky it's you. A, it's a body pillow with a picture of an anime chick on it that the... Almost always a man or a young man um, identifies as his object of clearly sexual choice, but also of companionship. I'm going to split these into two things. So the sexual choice is the fetish, and that fits that category to a T that he's talking about. You know, the nose is the waifu, right? But on top of that, where fetishistic disavowal happens is then on two levels. On the one hand, you have the I know very well that this is not the woman's phallus. And yet I experience it anyway. And then you also have the second disavowal, which is, I know very well that this is not a woman. And yet I will... Ooh. And and yet I'm, I'm going to precursor that with that's that's my view of what I think Freud would think. What I would think is that is something much more boring. And so it's almost not worth talking about. But it's more on the level of like, the guy's lonely... And this is like a good substitute for a woman. I mean, like women have deep experiences that that man cannot handle. And so the pillow is, as an ersatz woman, supplies us an incredible amount of narcissistic supply in not talking back. She's the relationship prayer wheel. Yeah, yeah, it's the relationship <laughs> prayer wheel. <laughs> so I feel like I, I like that because instead of uh, instead of like getting rid of psychoanalysis and going somewhere else, we traded Freud for Zizek <laughs> on that. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think it's sort of a substitute object to use, like you know in, in psychoanalysis. It's not it's not like God. I mean, we have so many substitute objects. We all over the place. It's it's fine. I think that the problem with the waifu is going to be more ethical, right? It's going to be that the, 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 the woman of your dreams is attainable and therefore not a woman, right? So the other issue that I kind of have with that that I think is problematic with it is I can't help but notice a part of um, I don't have to worry about any decisions being made by this person. Right. Because they're any, any issues we have, I've created 
in this fantasy drama that will eventually benefit me in the end, even if I... There's, like... I mean, I've, I've seen yeah. weird things of, like, the... I, I think my girlfriend's cheating on me, and it's... It's a body pillow. And, and, and you know what's really wild? Is the correct... For me, the correct interpretation would be... They've always been cheating on you. They've been cheating on you with the real. <laughs> the, the waifu is always... I almost wonder if that's like... like you go to, go to a convention where the waifu pillow is like dominant. I don't know. Actually, these conventions are great. So I want these people to have, obviously, access to like friends and social environment. Because the way out of having the waifu as your relationship is going to these conventions. But, like, you know, to the person who really believes, it's almost like, well, yeah, you know, they're cheating on you. They're cheating on you because they're just a fucking pillow. So, like, they're just, like, they're cheating on you with the real. <laughs> she has her imaginary relationships, but also the pillow is cheating on you with the rock. Yeah. I... The, I can't get over the, like, weird subservience angle of it, though. Right. Yeah. Like, the, uh, I don't know, I think it's still kind of one of those weird masculine things that, like, the, well, the guy's gotta be in control. So if you're someone who has experienced a lot of life that is felt outside of your control... I can kind of see where that comes yeah. from. Oh yeah, totally. But it makes it no less toxic. Well, I think that like Zizek, to continue with Zizek for a second, he has an analysis where he looks at. Do you remember the Budweiser commercial with the frogs and the beer and mm-hmm. the Budweiser? And to defeat that sort of fantasy would be to like, in, in his model, I forget which he does it all. He does it in like ten of his books. I just can't remember which one at the moment, but. Um, is that you have the the beer is the object of the man's desire. And in the princess and the frog, the frog is the prince object of the woman's desire. And so the solution is the man and woman go on a date, and then the frog and the beer get to go on a date. <laughs> 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 so there's a certain... <laughs> you know, and I, I, I think that's active here i mean i think that like okay we're, we're we're dangerously close to flipping to what is interesting about the essay but i want to actually do one more big problematic of what's really really toxic about this essay that is also going to be problematic in a lot of freud which is that this is the man's desire well, Chris, didn't you know only men have fetishes? It's clearly a fact with the confidence in which he is speaking about this. Well, it's this almost is like a only... man problem, all right? Th- these are manly issues. Well, it's even worse, right? Because if man is the marker at this era of what is human, and for Freud, if everyone has fetishes, then woman is not sufficiently human to what Freud is considering. Oh, you mean like how he says, in conclusion, we may say that the normal prototype of fetishes is a man's penis, just as the normal prototype of inferior organs is a woman's real small penis, the clitoris. Yeah. 
I mean, <laughs> and again, in 2020, of the state it's so absurdity. And I also, I also, okay, wait, no, you're saying absurdity of the state and the side. Go for it. Um, like, are the normal prototype of the fetish, oh, obviously, that's a man's penis, but the inferior organ, that's, that's women's. So, I'm curious, how familiar was Freud with, like, basic biology at this point? Or, I guess, how far had we been along with, like, fetus developmental biology at this stage? Absolutely no idea. Better than wandering uteruses, but I'm not sure. I just, <laughs> I, sure. I don't know. We, we I, know he it's accepts like, evolution. It's, it's the most, it's one of the easier, like no, you're wrong and I can prove it kind of moments because we all technically started as female. In oh, the clitoris develops the into clitoris the penis, right? oh, I remember the penis. that, yes. Yeah. So, I can't... Yeah, that's the inferior organ. I cannot rescue, and I do not want to rescue that paragraph. What I want to add is hilarity. And I think that... Another problem that really is from the beginning with Freud is the idea that, like, our imaginary as image processing machines, like, the, the what this depends on is an image. An image of the penis as a protuberance that is there, and the clitoris as one that's an absence, right? And these are all in the domain of images, right? But, like, there's more than images. And then secondly, the, the idea that the child is valuing their penis this highly is, if I remember right, completely disregarded by modern science. And this is where you have to have some later mechanism from Lacan or, or like what we're going to read Kresteva, which is that the phallus, how they rescue this is that the phallus is the only signifier and the woman as, as really other has a more abyssal way of being that is not hemmed in by social like, if we let femininity loose, it becomes monstrous, is basically the way Kristeva and them, they were going to do it. Whereas with, like, I don't know, just, like, I don't really, it doesn't accord with my experience of viewing feminine objects. Mm. Because they actually still, for me, don't signify absence. They first signify other, <laughs> Like, like, I'm not looking at a man, Ooh, and, you know what I mean? Like, no, I, that I think sense, that's, right? no, I, um, I think that's spot on. I, um, I think the term other is, is a good one because, you know, we, I think we're all inclined to draw our attention to things that stand out within an environment. Yeah. And I, uh, at least in my experience, I do not. I have not viewed women as like, oh, they're suddenly nothing. It is something different. It is something different 
that makes it, you know, more, I, 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 not necessarily this word in yeah. this context, but attractive to your gaze. Like, what draws it? It's not the absence of something for me. It's the well, something other. And that's where, like, I think that, like, like that's something other. So, like, when I think back to my early childhood experiences of genitalia, the first thought is curiosity. When I was a very little kid playing with other boys and girls, it wasn't an experience of loss, it was an experience of other, of, of, of a different apparatus that mm. you could almost make it more convincingly uncanny or abject, but I don't think you, I, for me, and again, like, I know he's not a phenomenologist, right? Like, we're not, it's sort of his trump card on us, right? Here is anytime we kind of, like, look to our own experiences, we're going to come up empty and he's going to say, well, that's because of all these reasons that are because psychoanalysis is not phenomenology. And yet, even I, so, I just kind of hate you know? the idea of having a conversation with me and like, I don't know, man, that doesn't really line up. No, you're just repressing it. I guarantee you. Like, I, I don't know. I guarantee you, you saw your mom and you're like, oh, no, what if my dick gets cut off? And I... I remember, okay, so I remember very early on having experiences as, like, a very, like, two to four-year-old child and bathing or showering with my parents. And... Your memory stretches farther than mine, aside yeah, from, I like, got like three, gym got like, showers stuff with my dad as a kid. Yeah, and I remember... The one thing that I remember is... I mean, God, I can't believe I'm going to say this to everyone, but, like, God, why not? Who cares? Is like as a child, you have a feeling of maybe inadequacy to the father phallus, right? Like when I was that long, I can't believe I remember that. <laughs> that's like, where it all stems I, from. I think yeah. I remember yeah. that. It's like, oh, mine's smaller, but also like, fuck, do I actually remember that? Or is that like, yeah, if I was then, it would have been small. Ah. You know, it's like, so, but then with the with my mom, it would have been more like, oh, this is other. It just, it just was, it's, it's a different feeling. And I also feel like this is where Freud missteps regarding incest taboo. So like as a kid, you're not, you, you know, you might have, you obviously you have childhood sexuality and there is a no involved, but it's so prevalent in Freud where it's like, well, wait a minute. I'm not sure if like my experience of a kid is that the other that I cannot transgress is therefore made so important. Ooh. It might be, but it's just, again, it's not according with my earliest memories, right? I don't know. I... Yeah, I don't know. And this... I, I like the way you use, like, the trump card, is that he can always do the, oh, no, no, no. That's just what you think, but that's actually due to this, based on this myth I've created. Yeah, you don't that's get that. You don't like get that phenomenal. You don't in phenomenology. You don't have that trump card. It's it's well. Does it accord with your experience? And you you have to go through bracketing and and like the serious endeavor of looking at your experience. Whereas with psychoanalysis, there's sometimes, at least with Freudian psychoanalysis, 
of faith involved. Oh. Right? Like, you have to look at this and go, oh, well, I guess I'll just agree with him because he knows best. He I mean, referenced one case. I, I love the confidence <laughs> in the statement. In every instance, the meaning and the purpose of the fetish turned out in analysis to be the same. It revealed itself so naturally and <laughs> seemed to me so compelling that I am prepared to expect the same solution in all cases of fetishism. That's just being a bad scientist to it's, me, it's, right? It's like you're being it's a like, bad... Wait a minute. So you had like this little focus group and you're like, yeah. well, I figured it out. I, I know it all now. Disregarding the fact yeah. that like the people he's seeing, no matter like how diverse they may be, are coming from the same fucking area. In the we, same, yeah, exactly. We haven't even reached a point where he's doing like worldwide cases where we can even examine like the cultural aspects involved with this. But he yeah. saw a few people and was like, fine, Jove, I've got it. Yeah, and I, I think about, okay, so think about in, in a lot of tribes, like women uh, expose their breasts and it's not sexual. In a, and, and in a more close to home experience, in American cinema, all breasts are sexual. Whereas in European cinema, sometimes a woman is, is just bathing and it's something about the beauty of the ideal figure female figure or just whatever it's it, it could also just be non-sexual and that's a distinct possibility all the time whereas in freud's case i think here he's in line with where we're at in american culture where it's like oh like the breast is always sexual because it's a breast and it's like well no <laughs> no i mean it's it's, that... it's it's not always anything it could be many things and I also want to say that, like... Problematic thinking behind yeah, right? it. Yeah, right? Yeah. So, uh, before we flip to the... There's some things in this that I thought were pretty fucking great. Weirdly enough, somehow. I want to actually say one thing about other theories. So, the... Um, there's numerous theories about how fetishes come about. That are not as mythological as Freud's I would say uh one is David Winnicott's which is that the object of childhood fascination just gradually becomes sexualized Ooh, you know and there's numerous others but I'm just going to pose that one as like a much less interpretation heavy example of an explanatory theory Another theory from the sexologist, I forget his name. Oh my God, he's really important. We'll have to look him up and put him in the thing. Um, Hertz, I forget, um, posited the theory that, okay, you're not always turned on by the whole person. You're turned on by aspects of a person. And if that's true, like you have, I'm turned on by their eyes, their, uh, are you a breast man or a boobed man or whatever, then you... a breast man or a boob man huh? yeah, yeah well you know what's what I your language oh, yeah. that you're or into butt man yeah right <laughs> a freudian slip right um then what you have is part like like single objects that drive your erotic desire and that means that the fetish can take the place of one of those objects it's just part of the ensemble of what 
gets you there. Hmm. I, I, I think it's a drastically more believable theory than... Look, I figured it out. It's because you're terrified of losing your dick. And then the woman's phallus becomes this object which haunts your experience and gets fucking thrown onto the wall of objects into a different object like a train. Okay. Oh, oh, the final thing. We already probably said this, but the biggest problem about this whole essay is that we've already said this, but I'm going to say it again. It's it's the male perspective. It's, well, I mean, the, his entire theory has no legs as soon as you're like, well, then do women not have fetishes? Because what's, what's the theory there? Yeah, what's the teeny? No, I'm terrified the... I'll grow a penis. I saw my dad's. I'm, what, do, what if I grow a penis? I'm terrified of having a, a new thing to worry about. I... Oh, you're gonna, we'll get there. There's a whole theory of, of on the feminine side, what happens, which we'll, we'll get to. But, but yeah, it's sort of that men are the regulatory, like, object that we're gonna talk about. And, and women, you know, it's like something dependent on men. Oh. <laughs> right? Like, it's something, but it definitely has to, whatever it is, it uh, definitely has to do with whatever men are. Oh, <laughs> you it's, know? it's a nice little look at where we were at that point is, oh, I mean, we got a long ways to go, but my God, it was just like, and, and yeah, women are like the accessory. You're the leftovers. You're or as Simone de Beauvoir says, the second sex, which we'll probably read from at some point. Okay, so let's, if you're ready, getting away from our bashing of the essay, let's talk a couple minutes about some of the stuff that made both of us go, hey, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> Was there any moment for you in the essay that particularly did that? Um, I mean, it was brief. But I liked when he talked about the difference between, um, like, neuroticism and, like, psychosis, essentially. You want is, me to read that for everyone? Yes, I, like, okay. I, I think that... It, yeah. And he'd like... I wish he would have expanded more on this, because this is actually, I don't know, a really good take on this, I think. Recently, I arrived. Whoop, we dropped. Recently, I arrived by pure speculation. Which is like, what else is the rest of this? At the formula that the essential difference between neurosis and psychosis was that in neurosis, the ego, at the behest of reality, suppresses a piece of the id, whereas in psychosis, it is impelled by the id to detach itself from a piece of reality. Later, I return to this theme once again. Well, thank you. Which is, is kind of a tricky formulation, but it gets updated in Lacan to what is barred from the symbolic shows up in the real. Mm. And that's sort of the formula for paranoia, right? Is there's someone outside your door? There's someone behind you? It's, it's God. 
Impending sense of doom. Yeah, it's God, yeah, right? Like, it's not, not God the symbolic name of the Father or whatever. It's God, it's the, great the literal yes. God. <laughs> it's actually Cthulhu. I mean, right? Because, like, 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 for, like, Lovecraft, Lovecraft is more on the side of writing through psychosis, It is right? the elders reclaiming after eons. It is, it is your time come. It, yeah, it... I don't know, I... I wish he would have expanded more on it now instead of later. Like he just kind of tosses in there. Yeah, he tosses a little thing. But I, I don't know. I think it's a, uh, especially for like this time period, like a pretty good analysis of, um, you know, I, uh, and nowadays I think that a lot of neuroticism is becoming more prevalent. But, um, you know, I, I also liked that it helped highlight the difference between the, uh, you know, your ego and your id there. It was a pretty quick little statement that we then just kind of move on from. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty complicated. A, as in psychosis, it is impelled by the id to detach itself from a piece of reality. It's very... Even though it's short, you can tell he probably spent a lot of time on that pair, on that little couple of sentences, right? Yeah. All right, so what I like about this. First of all, it opens up a whole realm of thinking where I think that in order to critique this essay, you're not going to be doing a different type of psychology, like ego psychology. You're going to do better psychoanalysis. Mm. like the whole realm of thought he's opening up it almost impels us to craft a better myth oh that's a great way to put it because the the little ideas in between these look i've got it and this is why stuff you're like what yeah the routes were right, but your destinations you chose. Why the fuck did you stop there? Yeah. Like, I, I, I like the, um, the, like, new way of thinking about this stuff, approaching it, you know? It's definitely immensely important, but he just kind of landed in the wrong spots, is how I feel a lot of the time. Yeah, and I feel like this also would be an essay that people would point to and go, ha ha, look how outdated and ridiculous Freud is, right? And we did that because it was fun and we read it, so why not? But also there's this, there's this other dimension, right? Where it's like, well, wait a minute. Do I actually consider psychoanalysis as a worthwhile endeavor? And as a person who does, if I do, then you're at a sort of imperative where you have to take the idea of fetishism and you cannot simply say, well, a piece of our brain did that and then it did that because you are letting psychoanalysis die. Yeah. You, Obviously, you're, you're, it's part of the brain. Where else would it be? <laughs> right? It's, uh, like, <laughs> it's kind of the same thing as the whole like, it's an eclipse. This is the end. I must murder my family so they don't have to suffer terrible things. You've you've eliminated any exploration in 
to something that clearly exists and is affecting you in some way. Right. You're just chopping that off. Well, like, a lot of... I would say a lot of people aren't on the... What they hate about psychoanalysis, of course, is that you're... (laughs) You're, in effect, an agent telling another person what's going on in their own brain behind what they can experience. And I think that that is... in. Deeply uncomfortable, but also a dick move, right? Like, you're not going to go to someone and be like, ah, but the real reason you're doing this thing is because yada, yada, yada. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't look at structures in that way. Like, the real reason I started reading psychoanalysis was the Trump election. Because I just couldn't explain it with, like, these... Any logic really you had? Boring explanations from other. Like, I had to do some non favorable reading to the subjects involved. You know, like, oh, well, what you think you're doing is not what you're doing was sort of my starting point at the Trump election because I was like, well, yeah, because. And, and the ultimate scientific, not scientific, but like the ultimate, I would say maybe liberal position is like. Well, they're dumb. And, yeah, that could be true. But also, it's, like, not helpful in any way, right? It's... I don't know. Maybe a product of, you know, us always trying to, like, find the solution. We're just, oh, we solved it. Moving on. Um, Or less solution more the answer like Mm. nope i have an answer for it moving on answer is not always solution Um, and also uh when we mean answer we we mean you know also meaning falls follows mm, absolutely uh answer that satisfies yeah um i i think would be a better way to put it but um you know i with a lot of this this stuff, at least for for me, why I you know had to reread it after the guffaws and haws. Yeah, uh, Preston and I both before doing the podcast went well. On our first reading, we were laughing and crossing out points, and 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 then on this only on the second read is everything shining through, right? Yeah, yeah. you you kind of cut like you eliminate the myth stuff, and I actually enjoy the um like different approach to thinking about things and i think it is drastically underappreciated how like whether or not the end game of your thought process was beneficial i i think that pioneering a different way to actually think about things is infinitely valuable and, you know, like, I... Yeah. I think both of us tend to like the way Lacan views some of this stuff a little bit more. And, like... Yeah, his even updates. Even Zizak. Yeah, like, yeah. The, the, the updates to this stuff seem a lot more palatable. But, I mean, it it started here. Like, and that, um... Yeah. Like, like a, you uh, one example. Like our, our ability to critique it... Yeah forces us to reform the model and i think that's immensely important but what we're 
the kernel, okay, like to be really specific, the kernel of truth that we're forming is the framing, not the content. Mm. Right? Like, okay, so he gives this idea of denial, which is, I can't, oh, where's the place where he says it's not the same thing as scotomization, which is to oh, avoid or forget a I trauma. Think that's on like the second page. Yeah, yeah, that's like page two towards the end. Um, and mine's a different translation. Oh yeah, mine says so for denial, the fetishist both retains this belief and renounces it, and that becomes later on fetishistic disavowal in the framing of like I know that climate change is real. But in order for me to accept that's real, I have to adopt this worldview and these set of parameters, and I can't do that, so therefore it is not real. Oof. Yeah, I... While the uh, things around his argument here I may not agree with, I, I think he's kind of spot on with that statement in a less sexualized context i guess you it's like say. you have to lift it out right and take yeah. it somewhere else well i also feel like this is where i said to preston before we started this that freud is the ultimate voldemort i think in theory world which is like you know he did terrible things terrible yes terrible things. but great <laughs> yeah yeah i um i like the spark but where his fire went I don't know if I uh, agree with a lot of that stuff there, but you don't. My secret is I, I remember when I was not allowed to wait. What what would it be? It would be I have to remember the trauma of castration fear from seeing the first uh, non penis of the female. <laughs> And then I displaced it. Also, I feel like, okay, last couple thoughts. I feel like you could defeat this formula in a incredibly strange way. That is probably not very good thinking, but I just want to say it because it's fun. What if, what if it's like Walt Whitman and you displace the feminine phallus as the world? And, and instead of having an object like tractors or noses, it's everything. <laughs> no, maybe not. Okay, well. No. I killed I kill Preston on that one. <laughs> it reminds me of this episode, of this, this show, um, uh, The League. It's like, not a big fan of football or fantasy football for that matter, which is kind of like the center point of the show, but it's funny shit. And there is a character in it who is a sex addict and like everything's a turn on for him. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's pretty good. Cause everything's a turn off, but what like Jenny, one of the main characters and she's frustrated that, the sex addict friend that everybody's worried about is going to be a creep is turned on by everything 
but her. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> uh, so, as we finish, uh, I would say that um, this is probably the most horrifying episode we've done so far. Just based on, for a lot of people, it's hard to talk about fetishism. Um, I think that, though, no later theory makes it any better. The problem with Freud's, obviously, there's homophobia but and sexism. But also, it's just a lot of steps. <laughs> right? Like, like, whereas the Winnicott was like a paragraph. And it was like, that's pretty good. And the other one, um, the sexologist who we're going to look up really quick. Um... But, you know, there was also a neuroscientist, I forget his name as well, who came up with looking at brain scans and realized that, if I'm right, and I might be wrong, correct me in the comments, the places in the brain that light up when we are shown pictures of genitalia is very similar to the places in the brain that light up when we're shown pictures of feet. And... A brain scan view of these things is actually also deeply uncomfortable to me. I don't know. There's something about that that's somehow worse and more direct than Freud, right? Yeah. Hirschfeld, I think is his name. Hirschfeld. He's a, a great... We'll probably read one of his essays at some point. Um, yeah. So I think, I think if I remember right, it was Magnus Hirschfeld who had the theory of the objects of different... Uh, sexual amplitude and mm. the fetish becomes one of those objects thrown into the into the mix if i remember right so well it's uh i don't know it's definitely a subject that uh we'll have to explore some of these other people a little bit more but it was fun diving into something that uh we don't spend most of the time just uh fanboying over so most of the stuff we've read i've thoroughly enjoyed yeah. And uh, this is the first one that had to backtrack and go, wait a minute. What are some gems we can pull out of here? Let's <laughs> let's revisit this. And uh, I don't know, I just... It's, it's one of the reasons I kind of like reading theory is trying these different thought patterns out. Because at the end of the day, you're just kind of creating different routes. We don't have to take them, but at least we know the road's there. And who knows uh, if we can find some sweet detours through that kind of stuff. I don't know. I, uh, I like reading this stuff more as a um, what if and a ah, this is it kind of a mindset. Like, I'm not mm. looking for all the answers. I'm just looking for some different roads to try out. Agreed. I think that's a great way to phrase it, Preston. Okay. Well, next week we're going to do... The first couple chapters of Julia Kristeva's Abjection, which is, I have to say, a blast. I love it. So I'm very excited for this one. We might be back it's to fanboying. Fun. So, it, you know, it's, it's always fun to read stuff you like, you know. Yeah. And stuff you don't know you're going to like. But I, I get the feeling this is going to be a pretty fun one. I think so. All right. Thanks, everybody. Until next time.